Conversations. I'm Sam. And I'm Max. And tonight we just finished viewing Lars von Trier's 2011 film Melancholia. And boy is it. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start with something. You mentioned a couple times as we were reviewing the film, God, I was so stupid the first time I saw this. Yeah. So this was your second time improvement? Yeah. Big time. So what, what was different? About four years of life experience (laughs) and uh, school and knowledge gaining. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there was so much in this film that I was half oblivious to and half just uh, was incomprehensible to me that it it was almost like seeing a different film this time. Wow. Um... Okay, so I guess just to do some housekeeping, um, it's a film about the end of the world. Yep. Um, This planet, called appropriately enough Melancholia, is approaching Earth, and our very rational scientific character is saying, no, it's not going to hit us. Kiefer Sutherland is his character. Wonderfully played by Kiefer Sutherland. (laughs) And then the two women in this film are skeptical of that, and it's uh, Justine and Claire portrayed by Kirsten Dunst and Charlotte Gainsbourg, respectively. And And, performed spectacularly. Yeah, that was one of the first things I was going to mention about this, too, is the movie's just perfectly cast. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think anyone knew Kirsten Dunst's range before this film. I I remember this was kind of different for her at the time. But man, does she sell it. Certainly she'd done a few good roles, but yeah, this is this is another level. It's a long way from Spider-Man. <laughs> well, I didn't exactly have <laughs> Spider-Man in mind, but that's also true. Uh, so maybe just a little bit of background, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a touch of Trivia Corner here. Uh, let's talk about Lars von Trier before we get too specific into this film. Yeah. Um, so at the premiere of this film... Uh, 2011 Cannes Film Festival, Lars von Trier made a joke and said he was a Nazi. Yep. And because of that, he was banned from the festival and uh, refused to do interviews. Uh, He's always been, after that point, uh, he's always been a very depressed guy. Yep. It really shows in this movie more than others. (laughs) And... um, and he's always talked about kind of like the virtues of how just the act of making films, not even the f- end product, not the films themselves or watching them, but making the films has always kept his depression at bay. I think that's probably true for a lot of artists. But with this guy, <laughs> we're talking like extreme depression. Yeah. Yeah, and but you I can, think you're right. And you can totally see that in the film. I mean, I remember the first time I saw this movie, it just left me... I don't know. I mean, it probably affected me for days at the very least. Kind um, of a slap in the face and a punch in the gut. Yeah, and parts of it just stick with you forever after you've seen it, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. there are particular shots and particular 
I don't know, moods that he gets across that just have so much staying power. Um, and that was part of why I didn't like it the first time, too, was um, not just not acknowledging the general like craftsmanship of the film, uh, but just sort of not having any relation to sort of where he was coming from. Yeah. And uh, just kind of, um, I want to say blindly, like blindly rejecting it. Yeah. Like it it hit me so hard emotionally that I was mad at it for doing that, sort of. Yeah. And this time I didn't really have the emotional hit. It was more of like an understanding. Um, but I, to the very end, you know, I was like sort of keeping my level head, whatever, not feeling emotional. But that last, very last shot... And the music swell still got me. Yeah, it does. So how does he do it? <laughs> well, I mean, probably being really depressed in real life yeah. has a lot to do with that. Yeah. But there's an irony there, because like Kirsten Dunst in the film, I mean, she becomes almost catatonic. She can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has to have people help her get to her bath. And... I think a lot of people who experience depression experience it in that way. They find themselves unable to do what they love. They don't find any enjoyment anymore. But somehow he's able to get past that and actually create this art in spite of his depression rather than just because of it. Right. And somehow just because that very act is rewarding enough to keep him yeah. keep him going. But so also interesting is that... Um, fairly recently within the last year uh he has admitted openly to having been a like alcohol and drug addict oh wow like all of his working life yeah sort of self-medicating right and he said like uh he would just he's like never made a film sober and he was like finally coming out of the closet about that I don't know. I can't say I was shocked when I heard, but it was. It still came as a really big surprise, despite everything in his films. Yeah, and uh, well, he. Sorry. I I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the films seem so like they were done with a steady hand, not mm-hmm. literally. Well, when talking yeah. about camera work, <laughs> right? But in terms of how perfect they are mm-hmm. in execution, perfect's a strong word. You're right. <laughs> I would stick with well crafted. Okay, but that's my personal choice. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about the film we just saw when I say that, but I I know that may still be a stretch. But okay, let's stick with well crafted. Okay, well you can keep your perfect. I'll stick with well crafted. I think he's made some films that aren't as perfect, and Antichrist is definitely one of them for me. And I know you really like that film, and we've always kind of disagreed about this. Like I've always been more pro-melancholia and you've always been more pro-antichrist mm-hmm. and the uh if i'm not mistaken the only thing he's made since then is nymphomaniac that's right which, which we both is, enjoyed right and i think is uh, pretty amazing i haven't seen the director's cut so that is something oh wow that's the only version i've seen oh so i don't know what you saw i don't well, know how much was cut at the- least there's a version we both like a lot for yeah. sure and that's sort of a culmination of his whole career you know like He's literally putting the pieces from his whole career throughout that movie. Yeah. Um, and the director's cut was like four hours long. Right. And that <laughs> even that, like, well, it's like five plus, right? 
I, th- I feel like the normal one is four. Maybe so. Okay, because, yeah, it's a, it's a film that's divided into two parts, right. each of them a feature-length movie. It's so. almost like, was it an artistic choice to deliberately, like, finish Nymphomaniac as the sort of ribbon on the first part of his filmography and then try sober filmmaking? Because he also he talked about, when he admitted this, that he thought, you know, he made great work in part because of his, rel- his reliance on drugs. And Did he say, as part of this announcement, though, that he's getting clean and that he's going to try to make film sober from now on? He or? did say that, and then I think, like, a, a couple months, a like, short time later, it was like, I relapsed. He relapsed, yeah. I don't know where he's at now. I mean, I hope him all the best. Yeah. But I'm sure whatever happens, he's still going to be making great films. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the next step. Um, so let's talk about that opening sequence because it it sort of stands apart from the rest of the film. It's Absolutely. like this little vignette out of a different movie almost. Yeah, and actually that was the one thing the first time I saw it that really did stick with me. I liked a whole lot. Was the opening sequence? Yeah. So it's all done and just like, painstaking slow motion painstaking or like beautiful both painstakingly beautiful yes perfect melancholia (laughs) yep that's the tagline you heard it here (laughs) you heard it here first kid (laughs) and well um so those are to a degree indebted to tarkovsky the russian filmmaker yeah andrei tarkovsky uh, who Lars has professed his love for. In fact, he dedicated Antichrist That's to right. Tarkovsky. To boos and catcalls at Cannes Film Festival, yeah. as I heard when that yeah. title card came up. Well, but uh, I mean, he's a provocateur, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's part of the whole deal with him, I or think. maybe more or less all innovators. There's always going to be the... Yeah. The haters. And before we move too far away from it, that Nazi... Thing at Cannes Film Festival, mm-hmm. if you watch the press conference and watch all of the stuff leading up to that in context, it makes sense. Yeah, I don't think it's as it's bad not as they that made wild. it out to be. No, totally no, no. And I don't think he deserved to get like kicked out of the festival. Of course not. Forever, no. I, that whole thing was ridiculous. But, but I mean, we've also expressed our views on the oversaturation of World War Two films. Right. <laughs> Maybe we're just insane. And I know that may still be more touchy in France than it is for us. Right. I don't know. It's, I mean, let's not start talking about okay, it. Okay, yeah. We've got a movie to talk about here. Um, so is it the imagery in that sequence that reminds you of Tarkovsky? Yeah. So, I mean, there's the just the level of how slow it is. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. And then there's, he even shows us a painting up close, which was by... Yeah, that Bruegel painting of, right. like, the people hunting in, in the, the snow. snow. Yeah. In the snow. Did you catch that? I didn't snow. catch that. Snow. Um, What's special about snow? Oh, I mean, it's, like, hailing at the end, and then there was that the uh, scene yeah. where they're picking berries, and it starts to snow a little bit. Uh-huh. And presumably it's the planet that's causing that. Right. Uh, but so that painting, if I... Again, if I remember correctly, it was also in Tarkovsky's Solaris. Okay. Solaris, Solaris, tomato, tomato. Yay. Yeah. Two other things about that sequence that stood out to me. One is that every shot 
foreshadows something that's going to happen later in the movie. But it's never exactly the same. No, it's not. It's right. different. This is like the more kind of abstract, painterly version Tableau. of what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, good. Tableau. <laughs> and then the other is the way it's photographed is so static. The camera does not move at all. Again, adding to the painterly quality. And then for the rest of the film, the camera does not stop moving. Right, except for the last shot. Except for the last shot. And and you mentioned the camera being static. I think there's even one shot. I only caught this in one. There might have been others, but um, I think the one where Kirsten Dunst is the electricity's coming out of her fingers. Mm-hmm. I think the background is completely static on that shot too. Like oh, we see yeah. the the electricity coming out of the telephone or electricity poles. Yeah electric poles, whatever they are, um, I don't think... It's not moving? Yeah. Interesting. I think. I'm pretty sure. We just saw this. <laughs> um, so what do, you, what do you think of the way he uses the camera? Well, okay, before we get into the moving camera, okay. let's talk a little more about these tableau things. Um, they're just... I mean... Obviously, they're really, really cool. Yeah. They are a sight to behold and set to the Wagner music. It's mm-hmm. like, whoa, you, is this the afterlife? Did they pass into heaven, you know, after the end of the movie? Yeah. Uh, but then, so each shot represents something that we see later, yeah. but never in exactly the same way and never at that same super slow speed. And um, it seems like they are... Kirsten Dunst's premonitions. That's right, because she talks towards the end of the film about how she sees things. She knows things. Knows things, yeah, that other people don't know, and before they happen. And uh, she wakes up from... Well, she wakes up uh, in one scene where she fell asleep on the son Leo's bed, and she says, like, she was walking through the, the plants and the... There's a brown yarn of ivy or something pulling on her. That's and right. It's the shot from the beginning. It's one of those shots. Yeah. As far as we know, she saw all of those shots in that dream. That's Maybe right. not. Yeah. But. Um, and a lot of them feel really symbolic. I mean, that shot of her trudging mm-hmm. through the forest with all that black yarn pulling on her. I mean, in that's her. The, dress yeah in her wedding dress that's yeah. that's the depression coming on at the wedding and then too you have those shots where it seems like the characters are mirrored by the planets that are above them you see melancholia over justine and then the moon over the sun mm-hmm. that's s-o-n is in the child leo right yeah um and then the sun over charlotte gainsbourg's character claire mm-hmm what do you think? Pretty cool. <laughs> what do you think? I think that melancholia is the most obvious, and then the sun and the moon. I think if you dig into those a little, you can maybe find something. Like Claire and the sun. In the, through the first half of the film, she's the only like source of comfort for Justine. She's the one who's kind of holding it all together. She's the strong one. I don't know. I think of the moon as being just this sort of passive. It's not its own source of light. It just reflects things. And it seems like the sun isn't a character with any agency in this movie. He's just sort of hiding melancholia. 
Melancholia is hiding behind the sun. Yeah. Before doing the death dance with Earth. Yeah. And there's a lot of that throughout, right? I mean, like, we have the obvious, or not obvious, because I didn't get any of them the first time. We have the more clearly formed um, motivations for uh, mostly Justine Kirsten Dunst's depression. Yeah. And then we have a lot of more ambiguous ones, and then we have, like, the just straight-up astrological destiny ones yeah. of the red star that shows up, the Scorpio. Was uh-huh. he, it was a part of the Scorpio yeah. constellation, and then it disappears. Because the planet's passing in front of it. Right. You see that in that opening sequence, too. The first shot of melancholia in space is it passing in front of that red star. Ah, so. right. Very nice. And she's the first to notice, like, having the premonition. Yep. Right in front of us. Yep. Lots of foreshadowing, lots of doubling back on itself in this film. Like the dance of death. Like the planet, yeah. Coming by Earth (laughs) once, doubling back around. Yep. Comes back around, takes us down. So, moving into the handheld camera portion of this film, which is the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We start with this long wedding sequence, and I mean, it's like... It's like the wedding sequence in The Godfather or The Deer Hunter in that it just dominates the first act of this film. Yeah. It's like one day's worth of events that last, feel like a week long wedding. Yeah. And then uh, there's a weird sense of time throughout this movie because after the wedding we jump forward months. Right. And then the rest of the film only takes place over five days. I think they say at one point that it's five days until Melancholia is going to be here. mm -hmm. So... Well, really compressed time frame. I got the sense even that maybe there's a lot more time passing in the second half, too. I mean, obviously, the first half is the one day. Yeah. But in the second half, uh, you know, he says that it's five days away. But how long has it been between, like, Justine arriving there and then him saying that? I think there's still at least a few days. Yeah. Maybe maybe a stretch, maybe a couple weeks. Yeah. I still think that that all adds to kind of the claustrophobic feeling of this movie, though. Mm-hmm. The time is moving faster than we want it to be, and, you know, this impending doom is coming really quickly. Even, like, go ahead. Even though this film feels so long. You and I talked about this off the air. It's two hours, but it plays more like three. Yeah. <laughs> Which is strange, too, for... Yeah, it's just distortions in time. He has a way of lingering on things that I think a lot of other directors don't do because they want to keep it moving, they want to keep the plot going, but he will just stay with one shot for so long. Well, yes and no. I think a certain kind of director won't do. (coughs) David Fincher! Um, But another caliber of film, filmmakers absolutely do, but in a different way. Right. It's... It's the way that he's he's always lingering, but the camera never really is. It's always, even if he's, it's a long take, you know, it's easy to not notice because he'll throw in so many rapid cuts 
And yeah. the long takes will have so much movement even in them, even if the characters don't move that much. Yeah. And just from, you know, close-up of a face of one, close-up to the face of the other, down to some little detail. <laughs> down to what their hands are doing. or. And that was a lot of what I hated the first time, too. Yeah. Um, part of why I like the camera work more this time is, one, seeing how obviously appropriate it is for all of the feelings and how much it has to do with the way the movie makes you feel yeah um but then it's it i would almost say it makes you nervous because it feels like the camera is nervous like darting around looking for something to focus on and not finding it and as you pointed out, it's uh, very clearly divided, too, between the two parts for each sister. And yes. in the first half, it's just getting increasingly uh, tense and angsty and shoved into this, you know, being wed too soon to maybe the wrong person and everything's wrong about the scenario. Yep. And it's all for someone else instead of who it should be for, you know. Putting on the show, oh, good sense of... Yeah. yeah, he really makes you feel it. And then in the second half, like you pointed out, it's it starts out a lot steadier. Yeah, and, and I think that slowly that's, progresses into that. Moment. Yeah, and I think that represents Claire. I mean, the first mm-hmm. the first part one of the movie, he I mean, he uses title cards to denote this. Part one of the movie is called Justine. Part two is called Claire, and Claire starts as the stable one, and that's reflected in the filmmaking until she starts to lose it. Right. And another uh, reason why I was kind of more appreciative of this camera work this time around um, was that it it's deceivingly simple in the mm-hmm. sense that it looks so easy, like we could just go shoot a scene like that now if you just have the right actors, you know. But you really can't. I've tr- like having been behind the camera. Trying yeah. to imitate specifically that once in a while. It's deceptively difficult. Uh, because, I mean, for every time that we see something out of focus for a second in this film, which is a lot, yeah, it's only for half a second unless it's, like, really, really purposeful, you know? Right. Or, and you really need a good cameraman who can sort of somehow know when and where to point at what. And there's so much sort of serendipitous sense in the movement of the rhythm of this. You know, like, it's easy to make fun of, but it's it's really not as simple as it seems. Yeah, and if you've got this big, complex set piece like the wedding scene where you've got hundreds of extras and all these different main characters together at the same time talking, and you've got to figure out who to point the camera at and who to focus on. I mean, I, I remember being impressed by particular shots where someone in the foreground would be talking, and then someone in the background would say something, and the camera would just temporarily shift focus onto them mm-hmm. and then shift back to the or foreground again. Or even just zoom in really quick. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. It's kind of a technical feat, and you're right, easy to go unnoticed. But again, very jarring at yeah. times. Yeah. Very purposefully jarring. Yeah, and I know it bugs a lot of people. But. Right. And I think I also remember reading that uh, Von Trier doesn't like to do a lot of takes. Like, a lot of times he just does one take or he takes the first take. And wow. Yeah, that's even more, like, almost mind-blowing. Yeah. 
Because I want to make comparisons to Kubrick with him, but I know that Kubrick would shoot the same thing hundreds of times right. if he had to. So. Well, I mean, but also just a, such a different cinematographical approach. Yeah. Um, I feel like this kind of gets us into the Dogma 95 thing. Yeah, so... So can you define Dogma 95 for us? Yes, it was um, founded in 1995, I believe. Uh, by Lars von Trier and his friend uh, Thomas Vinterberg, uh, both of them Danish filmmakers. Uh, his friend is more or most well known for his film *The Celebration*, mm. which is a Dogma '95 film. Um, the standout Lars von Trier Dogma '95 film is *The Idiots*. Uh, Harmony Corrine has one. Julian Donkey Boy. And basically, it was Lars and Thomas sitting down and kind of making this manifesto, sort of half in jest, half sincerely. Um, And the idea was it's a set of rules. I don't remember how many, you know, like 10 or something. And the rules are just like you use only natural sound, um, you use only handheld cameras, Uh, these kind of restrictive things. You can only use props that can be found in the shooting location. You only use natural light. You only use real locations. And the idea is like trying to create something more pure, getting into the heart of the truth of it, sort of like cinema verite. Um, But again, it is sort of half in jest in the sense that, you know, it's so restrictive that you could say it's like a hindrance and... And even there, you had to shoot on like video or 16 millimeter film, I yeah. think, or eight millimeter maybe. Which I've heard that uh, I've heard that Breaking the Waves, another von Trier film, right. isn't, isn't strictly Dogma ninety five, but it definitely comes across that way because it's shot on low resolution, handheld, natural light, natural sounds. Well, I wouldn't say low resolution. I mean, I think it was 16 millimeter film. Oh, was it? It does have a grainy texture to it. Okay. But, yeah. Um, and that's what's interesting, too, is the, and where that half jest comes back in, is they broke their own rules. Yeah. In making, the, and they would still put the, you know, official seal in the film. And you're not like, uh, Harmony Korine's film broke a couple of rules, too. And you're not supposed to say who the film is directed by. But, <laughs> yeah, we know that they directed these films. It's a, it's an interesting little... It's a cool little thing. Yeah. And um, it's obvious that the sort of ideas of that have not gone away as far as 2011 making Melancholia. Well, it's, but in some ways he really gets away from it in Melancholia because this film is so clean. Well... In terms of the photography. Well, is it really? I mean, it's shot at a high resolution. Yeah. It's digital. It's kind of crisp. But at the same time... It's not natural lighting by any stretch. It's lit just perfectly. Right. And I mean, it doesn't (laughs) pretend to be a Dogma 95 film. Right. But stylistically, it has that rough camera work, always handheld with the exceptions of the bookend scenes. Weren't you the one who told me, though, that Von Trier said in interviews that he thought this film was too clean, that if he had it to do over again, he would have shot it at lower resolution or something? I don't remember that, but that's fascinating. I I know I've heard that. He thought it came out looking too pretty, basically. Well, I'm really glad it did. (laughs) 
because I, I mean, it's already, it's a, a bit of a slog if you don't know what's coming. And yeah, yeah it kind of, it can blindside you. But to imagine this, not <laughs> at a low resolution on top of that is a little startling <laughs> to think about. Yeah. Some little notes that I had from the wedding. Um, Justine's mother is this very difficult woman who stands up and gives this really embarrassing speech about how she hates weddings and that anyone in her family is involved with them. She is the only casually dressed person at the wedding. Everybody else is in tuxedos and nice dresses. She's wearing like this blue sweatshirt with this white circular pattern on it it's like oh that's the first sign of melancholia mm. is this mother not only how she's acting but what she's wearing and uh maybe like their dad played by john hurt yep was the son that she was hiding behind until after their divorce oh that's right because mm. he's still all bright and happy through right. the whole wedding right he can't be stopped and the colors are interesting too. In the first half being all yellow, uh -huh. the second half's mostly kind of blue. Yeah, it's it's got a sort of yellow golden sun tint. Despite the fact that it's all at night. Yeah, well, I guess if you think about candlelight and interior lighting, right. incandescent bulbs or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, a couple of the things the camera focuses on. Um, one of them that we both noticed was this sort of phallic-looking drawing hanging on the wall. That, Which turns out to be a giraffe. Yeah, but it doesn't look like a giraffe when you're just going by it as the camera did. <laughs> right, and it's a little out of focus. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of, I guess, many phallic symbols in this film, the other main one being the uh, telescope. Right. Which only the men, uh, the sun... Leo has a telescope in his room, and then John, played by Kiefer Sutherland, has his own big computerized mm -hmm. telescope, and that's it. And the women don't know how to use them. Mm -hmm. and, and they have to kind of, like, you know, Kiefer Sutherland over and over is just, you know, trust me, like, melancholy is not going to hit us. Yeah. Trust me, I'm the man. And... I know science. And Charlotte Gainsbourg, kind of trying to reassure herself when she's talking to her sister, says, you know, oh, John researches these things. Mm -hmm. He knows. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to a bigger point, um, kind of throughout Von Trier's career, is the gender politics, and specifically women, as the focus. Um, yeah. Because the men are oppressive in this movie, but they are a source of problems throughout all of his films. And I'm struggling to think right now of a film of his with a male as the main protagonist. I haven't seen The I'm, Idiots. I'm struggling too, but yeah. Dogville, Nicole Breaking Kidman, the Waves. Yeah, uh, Bjork. Uh, Nymphomaniac. Charlotte Gainsbourg. Yeah. Okay, so... The now, one exception I might be able to think of is Antichrist, Willem Dafoe. And is he the protagonist? I don't think so. I, for me, Charlotte Gainsbourg is the central character of Antichrist. But is she a protagonist? That, well, does that, <laughs> that has matter? Some, well... I meant main character, I Doesn't guess. it have some problematic gender politics? I've heard that film called Misogynist. Well, that's what I wanted to go to next, is people call Lars von Trier outright misogynist. Yeah. 
But I think that's pretty misguided at best. Yeah. Um, his women take a lot of abuse in his films. But they also... I mean, we're focused on... The abuse happens. But he it's never the sense of, like... Look, um, you know, women suck. They're getting beat up because they deserve this, something. That comes up in Antichrist. And people point to it being misogynist for that reason. But it it's so much more, to me at least, and maybe I'm sexist. I, I mean, maybe I'm blind to this. I don't know. But my take on it is his approach is the, he's, it's like a kind of societal satire. Okay. Of like it's the society that's misogynist that plants the idea that creates... Like, and we see this in real life, I think, to a much lesser degree than Antichrist. Yeah. It creates the idea that feminism is not equality for everyone. It's like women over men. And that's so twisted. And I think yeah. that's a lot of times what he's trying to point out. And the whole idea of martyrdom is so heavy yeah. throughout his filmography. I mean... Especially Breaking the Waves. It comes to mind in all of them right away. Yeah. Breaking the Waves, Nymphomaniac, <laughs> this one, Dogville. Yeah. The women are always the victims, but it's always this martyrdom that they're sort of forced into by their circumstances. And it, I think in real life, what I was going to say, we see it to a lesser degree with uh, even women using a term like feminazis. Yeah. That's stupid. Yeah, I, I think that's all completely valid. And another thing is, um, we've talked a little bit about gender politics in the films we've watched and discussed, uh, but I don't think we've consciously done a Bechtel test on any of them. Explain. So that's the, if I remember correctly, something I say a lot of times on this uh, podcast, if I remember correctly, I don't think I say it that much in real life, but to allow for a margin of error. Uh, it comes from a comic strip from the 80s. It was drawn by a woman. I uh, want to say she was a lesbian, maybe just the characters in the strip were. And these two lesbians come out of a movie, and one of them says, um, yeah, for because the author of the comic strip, her last name was Bechtel, hence the name. But... Uh, she says, yeah, for every movie I see, I give it this little test. And that is, are there at least two female characters with real names and, like, more than two lines of dialogue that talk to each other and talk about something other than men? Okay, so... that Obviously, that's true of Mount Kalia. Right. I'm sure... I'm pretty sure Lars von Trier's films, all of them pass this test. Not Antichrist, because you only have one female character in that movie. It's That's amazing startling. what a small cross-section that movie is. It's just her and Willem Dafoe. Well, no one else has a speaking role in that account. film. Well, the fox has a speaking role. Oh, well, <laughs> that male fox. <laughs> well, okay, so could you apply the Bechtel test to a film where it's just two characters? I mean, it, there are other characters. But yeah. That's an interesting concept, though. At um, any rate, his other films pass it. Yeah. And I don't know that everything we've discussed so far has. Um, 
the first one that pops into my head is Blue Velvet. <laughs> and that does. Which has also gotten accusations of misogyny from That's critics. That's true. But... And I think it's interesting that we level these claims of misogyny against films that are made by men trying to dig into the female psyche. Yeah. Because because how many films are there that aren't even, like, don't even care about that as an idea? Right. So you're saying at least they're trying, right. even if they get it wrong. Like, I mean, I'd rather see them get it wrong than no one try. Right. But, of course, the, like, much better alternative is a female filmmaker right. making those films. I guess, I guess the other side of that argument is they're not really trying to get into the female psyche. I mean, I think you could make that argument about Blue Velvet. I think Jeffrey's you could. The, it, we're in Jeffrey's head through the whole thing. And that's true, but I mean, again, David Lynch made this film, and David Lynch is a man. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, a major problem in filmmaking in general, that there's not the equal opportunity for women to be directors. They don't have the same level of respect. I'm sure of that. And that's more or less always been the case. Hopefully that is improving. Um, and we'll only get better with time. But... Enough about sex. Let's go to money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think that there's a lot about class in this film. Absolutely. Um, so it all takes place at this giant estate. It looks like it's in the north of England. And it's owned by Kiefer Sutherland's character... And from the very beginning, I mean, one of Kiefer Sutherland's first lines is, you know, the most expensive wedding planner in the world. And he goes on and on talking about, do you know how much money this wedding costs me? And he talks about how there are 18 holes on their golf course at the estate and all of this stuff. And you can see that it's a really lavish production there. And that's part of what I think ultimately makes... Uh, Justine's so uncomfortable mm -hmm. and there's the scene where she goes in and talks to her mother and her mother obviously doesn't fit into this whole world that they're in this whole scene this whole scene yeah. yeah and the mother says to Justine you don't belong here why don't you just get the hell out <laughs> right and, and that's they sort have of a big conversation in the bathroom that we don't know a lot about, too. Remind me. Uh, Keith Sutherland <laughs> goes to check on them because yeah. they aren't there for the cake cutting. Yeah. And they're having a private conversation. They're locked in the bathroom. And, you know, we're with him on his perspective of being kept out of that. And uh, so I had this vague theory that maybe the mom uh, has been diagnosed with something. Yeah. And is telling her at that point and is partly a contributing factor to the depression, although the, the whole wedding scenario is definitely the main motivator yeah. before any of that even. Uh, and then that maybe the mother dies between parts one and two because I feel like clearly something much bigger has happened to Justine between parts one and two. It's not just the way we left her after that wedding. Yeah. It's like something pushed her way further. Either. Yeah. And maybe it was just the premonitions, too. Yeah. 
But the fact that the mother um, or either of the parents really is just not a part of part two at all, despite mm-hmm. the fact that they know the end is coming to a certain degree yeah. is interesting. And I think that sort of gets at this theme of depression more generally and more abstractly. And I think to use language like it's motivated by this or that doesn't always hold. I think one of the insidious things about it is that it doesn't necessarily need motivation. I mean, it is a disease. And right. In spite of whatever is going on around you, it can affect you. And it's irrational. Right. Wherever it comes from. Right kind of like this planet. I mean, it might as well be a cosmic force. It so comes out of nowhere and it's so out of your control, which is why I think this planet heading towards Earth is such a great metaphor for depression, even though Von Trier, when asked in interviews, is melancholia a metaphor for depression? He says, no, it's literal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one, don't ask questions like that in a press conference. I mean... I just, I don't think that's good etiquette. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> two, I'm sure it is like a <laughs> literal feeling for him yeah, in yeah. that scenario. What did you think of the scene where she's lying naked, sort of basking in its light? When part two began, you pointed out um, that now everything is totally from Claire's perspective. Mm-hmm. And that scene jumped to me uh, first. And I was thinking, wait a minute, she's alone out there basking in the moonlight. But, yeah, as you went on to prove me wrong, um, Claire follows her out there when she goes. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, I think on an aesthetic level, it's sort of like trying to get at a painterly thing that's Mm -hmm. going on with the tableaus in the beginning. And just, you know, the nude as, like, the classical, like, ultimate beautiful thing to paint. Mm-hmm. And that's problematic, you know, that it's the thing to paint. Yeah. Um, and that idea of trying to capture the beauty. Mm-hmm. And I can see misogyny claims coming from that, but, I you know, in context, I yeah. still don't buy it. I Yeah, I I think there's no way Von Trier's a misogynist. I think... <laughs> I, I think feel with like all the evidence we've put forward, it's yeah a done deal. But but what do you think about this? Scene? It hit me more kind of like psycho emotionally mm-hmm. um, because I was thinking about okay, we have already seen Justine at her lowest point where she can't even get out of bed by herself, and we know the planet's coming and it's probably going to kill everybody. So how can you find? so much beauty. I mean, it's a beautiful shot Mm -hmm. of this woman who we know is depressed underneath the planet that we know is literally going to kill everyone on Earth. And I I wonder if it's not her sort of reveling in it and finding like a comfort and a strength in knowing what she knows. Because by the end of the movie, she's the only strong person left. Charlotte Gainsbourg has sort of lost her what control she thought she had. John's dead. John committed suicide. John committed suicide. He really lost what he thought he had control over. Oh, yeah. Um, Talk about death of the patriarch. Yeah. 
Yeah. There he is. He <laughs> killed he himself. Is. Yeah, and then is really unceremoniously just buried under some hay in the stables. With the horses. With yeah. the horses. But, yeah, it's almost like at the end of the day, Justine is proven right. It's like she was right to be depressed. Mm-hmm. Like, things really are this bad. The the world really is coming to an end. But this scene <laughs> as turning point for her is sort of like astrologically, you know, with all the star and space elements mm-hmm. prior to this. or, And I'm not confusing it with astronomy. I do mean astrologically. Astrology, yeah. It's like maybe she's like basking in the... Like saving up power, like gaining strength somehow... From the is it the moonlight or is it melancholia at that point? I think it's I think just it's moonlight. Oh, it looked so blue. I thought it was melancholia. Is it close enough at that point? I think so. I think if we went back and watched it, I think yeah, they show okay. the planet. But yeah, it's like she's drawing some sort of energy from it. Mm-hmm. And with that um, sort of angle, I think the nudity does make sense too. Yeah, it's like more direct contact, something. Yeah. So I wonder if that's. I mean. Uh, Obviously, knowing that Von Trier struggles with depression himself, this has to be a deeply personal film for him. So when Kirsten Dunst says stuff like, life on Earth is evil, no one's going to miss it. And we're the only life force there is. Yeah. I wonder if that's confessional for him. I wonder if he really feels that. I'm, Or if not all the time, I mean, at least feels it when he's in the depths of despair like that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Yeah. And I think he's actually mentioned, too, that he more or less is the character of Justine in this film. Oh, yeah. That it's supposed to be him. Yeah, makes sense. And again, fascinating that it's he put himself into a female. Right. But again, his filmography. Yeah. Two really strong, fully developed female characters in this movie. Mm-hmm. There was that whole subplot with her job, <laughs> the advertising job, mm-hmm. and her sort of scummy boss who's like pestering her to get this tagline through her wedding. And um, Mr. Sarsgaard. Yes, portrayed by Von Trier regular Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> right. Yeah, so Skarsgård introduces her to this new hire of his, this young guy, and he's like, he doesn't have any education, so he's perfect for public relations. He says, I gave him a good job with a good salary. Mm-hmm. That all just struck me as like Von Trier so critiquing that world and their whole way of doing things. Right. And if we continue the metaphor of Kirsten Dunst's character is Von Trier, what she finally tells him at the end of her wedding where she says he's a despicable, like, small, power-hungry little man. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of what he wants to say to that whole <laughs> line of business. And not just to that line of business, but I think to probably to producers who maybe ask him, you know, just give us a tagline for your film. <laughs> yeah. Just give us exactly. one shred of something we can use to market it. And he's like, you know, fuck you. Right. <laughs> Um, and that, that sex scene on the golf course is rape. That flew over my head the first time. Yeah? Yeah. He walks up to her, 
Or is she even pulling him by the hand? I don't remember. No, I think he's following her because he's trying to get he's, the tagline from her. Right. And then she pushes him on the ground, gets on top of him, and covers his uh, mouth with the, her hand and goes for it. I miss He's lying totally passively on the ground. I missed her covering his mouth. Yeah. So did I the first time. <laughs> um, now, presumably, he could push her off of him. Right. I don't know. You don't think he was consenting? It's, I mean... <laughs> it's ambiguous. It's pretty ambiguous, at least. And he does come up to her later and say, we had good sex. He does say that. <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird scene, nevertheless. Challenging. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same golf course where she drove off on her own in the golf cart to have a pee while she's in her wedding dress on the ground all in a bid to make the audience uncomfortable mm -hmm. I think yeah a nice <laughs> Which little bit he's good at he's very exceptional at um the other thing I wanted to mention was Kiefer Sutherland's suicide because the first time I watched it I thought that was out of character mm -hmm. for him and the way Charlotte Gainsbourg handles it, you said while we were watching it this time, like, oh, she took her husband's death like a pro. Mm -hmm. But did she? I I think she did. I honestly believe it's, like, everything she's going through is primarily driven by not saying goodbye to her husband or even her child. Just the concept of it's over completely for everyone, especially her. Yeah. I think the whole movie is so much less about saying goodbye to other people as having to just come to terms with your own death. Yeah. And because he doesn't come no. to terms with his own death. It's like, I'm going to take control of my own destiny <laughs> yeah. in a really twisted, like, misguided way. Yeah. And how interesting that this film setting, I mean, it's a movie about the end of the world, and we're in the same house through the whole thing and only mm -hmm. focusing on these few characters, whereas other end of the world movies, you have a shot in Tokyo and in New mm -hmm. York City, mm -hmm. and uh, they try to have this huge scale with all these different characters, but this is so intimate and so personal, and I think it does force you to confront that idea of your own death versus just everybody's. Absolutely. And the major difference comes from Von Trier knowing what he wants as the focal point. Yeah. And disaster movies kind of, it's like, it's pornographic the way they show all these extra shots in other cities that we don't <laughs> focus on at all. Yeah. You just kind of see them just to make you believe everybody's really dying. Yeah. But, I mean, he does it in like two shots here by showing the planet's like crash into right. each other and I think that making reference to like the butler character not showing up for work mm -hmm. and Kirsten Nuts asked well does he have a family and yeah he might have a family in the village and just those little oblique references to the village the village I mean, yeah that's so much more powerful than even if he had shown it mm -hmm. and it probably also stems a little bit from Von Trier's uh raving appreciation for Shyamalan's film, The Village. 
Just a nice little reference. There. Really? No, I made that up. Okay. <laughs> but I like that you Von believed Trier's. it. But no, nah, I was skeptical. <laughs> I thought Von Trier's better than that, surely. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no anyway. offense. No, no. Untaken. But, you know, even though you try to shelter yourself from the outside world, melancholy is still going to kind of kill you. Yep, it's just hiding behind the sun. You can't escape. Um, and the sun is an interesting character. Not the planet, the, not the astrological body. The child. Body. Yeah. <laughs> At that time I did mess up astronomy and astrology. Let's scrap all that. The sun, the Leo. child character, Leo, is an interesting character. Because he, he brings a different sort of atmosphere to so many scenes where if it had just been... Keith or Sutherland, John, um, Justin, and Claire. You could easily just kind of see them not talking to each other for all their final days, maybe eating together, maybe not. Yeah. And just, I don't know. But somehow Leo's presence brings more, not higher stakes, It brings more humanity to it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's the only thing that makes Justine humane is that she cares about him. But even in the end, I mean, it, he's ultimately in the hands of... Um, yeah, Justine. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got them mixed up. Because, you know, moments before, she's telling Claire, I think your plan's shit, mm-hmm. when Claire wants to do something nice together before the world ends. Mm-hmm. And... But she immediately goes out and she starts to try to comfort Leo. Because she will um, treat him as a child, because he is one. Yeah. But she refuses to treat her own sister as a child. I see. Because she's not. Yeah. I think that's an impressive level of maturity in the character, in Von Trier. And what a way the tables turned, because in the special features that I've watched on this, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg was talking about her character and talking about how she's kind of a nurse for Justine, and it's the only way she really relates to her sister. That's true. And their roles are completely reversed by the end, Mm -hmm. except Justine refuses to be a nurse. Uh, Claire needs somebody, but Justine won't be that for her. It's not exactly like comforting yeah nurse anyway until that final shot when they're all holding hands i feel like there's some redemption there but yeah what a great final shot yep so great film masterwork there are two more things i want to say yeah can't remember one okay that's a problem maybe by the time we finish the first one i sure hope so um just uh leah's name yeah made me think of Galileo. Yeah, but you've got you've got Leo the constellation and you've go. got Galileo looking through the telescope. Mm-hmm. Little Galileo. And he invents this little thing too for measuring. And it's like, you know, only the childlike sense of wonder could have invented this little rudimentary tool mm-hmm. that lets us uh, measure if it's moving towards us or away from us. Melancholia. And then the father's name is John, and I mentioned that John wrote the book of Revelation, ironically predicting the end of the world, when, in fact, John's character is the Completely denier. Completely in is, denial for yeah. the whole film. 
and then just commit suicide. Yeah. Wow. Sort of the, I don't know, ultimate act of denial. I'm not going to accept this. Absolutely. And maybe that's part of why Claire doesn't seem to really register his death is maybe she's just straight up in that denial stage of grief. Right. Or she's trying to maintain that composure of being the nurse, of keeping everybody calm, keeping everything under control. Mm -hmm. Just doesn't work for her ultimately. So going back to the issues of social class in the film. And everything taking place in this estate. And um, the painting we mentioned that also makes an appearance in the Tarkovsky film. And the there's two shots in the film that are also uh, reminiscent of specific paintings that were also shown super briefly. One is one of the early tableau shots of Justine in the water holding the flowers, wearing her wedding dress. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other is a shot of her from the modeling agency, like sprawled on the floor with two other models. And we see both of those paintings in passing. Yeah. And we see them in a room that's just art books. And, you know, you can read a bunch of the spines because they're just giant coffee table books. You got Velasquez, art history, history of art, theory of art. All these art books that are sort of locked up in this little room in this giant mansion um, to not be enjoyed out in the open, but to just sort of, I don't know, try to fake some sort of um, intellectualism or... Culture. Culture, (laughs) yeah, sense of culture. But the books in this great shot that just shows kind of close-up of these elastic bands holding the books open on the shelves so that you can flip to specific paintings and set those in the books on the shelves for yep. viewing. Uh, the, he's showing us these elastic bands literally holding the art back. Yeah. And I thought that was such a great little touch. That whole room as a concept, but especially that elastic yeah. band. Money holding art back. Mm-hmm. I could see it. And the the black elastic bands are even a little reminiscent of the black stuff that's holding Kirsten Dunst back as she's trudging through her vision. There we go. That's a wrap, fellas. (laughs) I do feel like I should mention, just as an addendum to all the stuff we said about sexism earlier, uh, also worth noting, we're just two guys talking about this. That's true. And we're breaking the <laughs> we're breaking the Bechtel test yes. by doing this podcast, even though it's not a movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, just just to as a little disclaimer, like take what we say with a grain of salt, kind of thing. Absolutely. You were gonna ask, is this a masterwork? Did you want to close on that? Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's close on okay. that. Okay. Is this a masterwork? Where does it rank for you among? Von Trier's catalog. What do you, I mean, what are you left with with this film? On the Blu-ray box I have right in front of me, um, it says, Stunning. A movie that leaves the viewer in a state of ecstasy, a moving masterpiece. Entertainment Weekly. 
I take major issue personally <laughs> with the statement, a movie that leaves the viewer in a state of ecstasy. Yeah, I don't think it's supposed to leave you in ecstasy. I don't think Von Trier would appreciate that. <laughs> and then you flip it over. Uh, Melancholia, a potent beauty of a film, features Dunst's incomparable performance. A brilliant film, one of the most beautiful, visually stunning, emotionally affecting films, truly a masterpiece. I think some people have not had any problems calling this a masterpiece. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that, but after first impression, this was my least favorite Lars von Trier film, and it wow. stayed that for four years as I continued to watch his back catalog, and after Nymphomaniac came out, I think Nymphomaniac is my favorite, but I could wow. be forgetting something. Yeah. Um... I like this film a lot more now. It's definitely really good. <laughs> it's a really good movie. I hesitate to say something like masterpiece, but only because a word like that is dangerous. And so is the idea of qualifying art. So what are we even doing here? Yeah. Is it a masterpiece for you? Um, with everything we've talked about, yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know of any other film that deals with depression in such a complex way. Yeah, I would definitely put it in top five on Trier, and I'm happy to qualify art because we're making a <laughs> we're making a film podcast about our opinions about art. So I guess I asked for that one. <laughs> Two other things I remembered. Oh yeah, well, you'll have to. I can back struggle to put these. Yeah. Um. The planet's sequences, mm -hmm. however brief, and the fact that Tree of Life came out the same year. Yeah. And the fact that both are drawing so heavily from 2001, and the kind of uh, using these space images as poetic imagery with this, like, classical operatic music. Yeah. But such different ways to take them. Because mm -hmm. I feel like in Tree of Life, Terrence Malick is like, oh, look how glorious and beautiful this all is. And in Melancholia, it's like, oh, look how alone we are. Mm -hmm. And true. And, <laughs> but then 2001 is somewhere in the middle, right? It's like there's life yeah. out there, but in the end, he is alone. Oh, we could do a podcast episode on the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> We should really stop saying we could do an episode about everything. <laughs> you mean I should stop saying because I'm the one who's always saying that. Okay, but then, so of those three films and using the space in a certain way, I, I feel like if you take out Tree of Life and replace it with Alien, you've got Whoa. an interesting trilogy there um, because it's this opening sequence in all three all three science fiction films, but also I think you could call all three art house films. Okay. Or would at least Fair play enough. in an art house theater yeah. to a receptive audience. Um, and they all three have this opening sequence that just stands apart from the rest of the film, kind of in tone, style, this very specific use of the music and the space imagery. You're right. It's been too long since I've seen Alien. Well, to it's got know, this. But it's kind of it opens like a ballet sort of. 
you got this same similar music. The Nostromo comes in, like in two thousand one. Yeah, it's spaceship, and um, and then we come in in these really slow fades. We get from wide to closer and closer. Uh, just these dissolves. Uh, to the sleeping pods opening super slowly and it's all white and clean and beautiful and it's like a flower opening up huh. like blossoming it's like springtime has just begun yeah it's setting the stage for the whole film and then everything goes south from there yeah in all three films you're right and i think it's something really special and unique to those three in the use of that opening Maybe there's something else out there I haven't seen that fits. Yeah. But worth but they're all kind of tapped into the same tonal mm-hmm. thing. And the other thing was the title card, if you can call it that, is I love because it's um, it just says... Lars von Trier, Melancholia. Yeah, it's so rough looking. It's so, it's like handwritten in sand with fingers, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, it's like that kind of the feel of the camera work and the edits that you're getting in advance. But it's something about the fact that Lars von Trier is like almost indistinguishable from melancholia. Uh-huh. It's the same font, it's this almost the same size. They're side by side and we even read his name before the title of the film. Yeah. I think he does the same thing in Antichrist. Yeah. At the beginning and um it's bold. Oh, he's yeah, he's it's really putting very himself out there. <laughs> brave. Uh kind of thing it would be easy to criticize, but I think was the right move. Yep. And it really suits the whole putting himself into the character of Justine and the film as a personal extension of himself yeah. into the screen. And the texture. That kind of painterly texture. Too. Yeah. But the opposite of the painterly tableaus we just saw. And the fact that the rumbling from Melancholia from the last shot that we see of space stuff in the opening tableaus stays through that title card mm-hmm. and doesn't go away until the film begins in the next shot. Yep. Strong. Strong opening. Masterpiece. <laughs> Masterful opening. Yep. Masterful final shot. Very good film. So, join us next week for our discussion of the 2000 crime drama Sexy Beast. Directed by Jonathan Glazer who you might know from Under the Skin. So if you haven't heard of Sexy Beast, you're gonna wanna stick around.